0: Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we have a lot. Uh, Courtesy of what happened yesterday, we have more than I was expecting. We have uh, a chat about the food situation around the world as a result of the Russo-Ukrainian War. We have talk of the dollar on decline and how Ghana is facilitating that decline. We have trouble in Britain. We're going to talk about uh, sort of my observations of the problems occurring there. And we'll also talk briefly about the unrest in China. All that and more coming up. get into the rapid fire news so we have turkey ramping up attacks on kurdish groups in northern syria this comes in response to the bombing in istanbul that happened last week which for which they blamed various kurdish groups namely the pkk for the bombing and they accused the u.s accurately of being involved because we support financially and militarily various kurdish groups including the pkk so They're doing this, and the U.S. is now, you know, they're objecting to it. But what's happening here is that America is essentially, like I mentioned in the previous episode, America's being forced to sort of choose. The Kurds, our ally, or Turkey, our NATO ally. And so the U.S. is really sort of, Stayed out of this you know, and sort of given the Turks the free hand to do what they want against the Kurds as to make it look like they're not being You know biased towards any one side at least that's how it appears for now. We'll see if America decides to weigh in later on But for the time being it seems that the US is caught in sort of a, a catch-22 If they support their allies that they're going against their allies no matter which side they choose Now, they could choose to stand with their overt allies, the Turks, in, you know, NATO. Or they could stand with their covert allies, the Kurds, against NATO, ironically. So, the best, I think really the best option here, that the interventionist position would be, the people who think that maintaining these alliances is a good idea, the best option they can choose is not to do anything, so... At the very least, we're taking the, the better option from that range of choices. Turkey, the Kurds, or do nothing. Now, I maintain the position that isolationism is the one true ideology, and the real best position to have is to not be involved at all. Now, there's, there's some prospects. But if we're going to be involved, well, then I think doing nothing would be the best option to take. Politically, and strategically, anyway. Why pick sides? So that's what's happening with Turkey and Syria. We have Al-Shabaab attacks in a hotel near the presidential palace in... I believe this was... Somalia. I believe it was Somalia. For some reason, I've failed to write down the country that this happened in. So I I could be so far off the mark right now. um, It's insane. I believe it was Somalia. If not, I'll say Sudan. Eh, I think it was Somalia. Uh, But... Yeah, this is big, big attack. Apparently it happens a lot, but this one was pretty big. So it, you know, got more attention. We have Russia continuing its missile bombardment of Ukrainian, uh, Ukrainian civilian infrastructure and specifically targeting the Ukrainian power grid as we are now on the verge of December. It's starting to get cold I, I now have to wear my gloves outside whenever it gets dark out because it's getting cold. And there's even weather reports that next week Ukraine's going to start to get its first snowfall, which means one one it means that Europe is in Europe is uh, on the verge of that humanitarian crisis we talked about over the entire summer. It's crazy though to be here. December is uh, less than a week away. And we've been talking about what's about to happen since last summer. I swear the time flies. And for Europe, that's a terrible thing. Because they're about to have a humanitarian crisis. They have no power. They have no heat. Well, they have... Actually, no. They don't have power because they got their electricity from Russian gas. So... All the the people in Germany buying these electric heaters, well, it's nice to see that they're taking initiative. But where are you going to get the electricity for these heaters without Russian gas? No matter how you cut it, Europe is going to take this L. And it's going to be long and painful because the winter tends to drag out as of lately. If you'll notice, the winter goes on until April. Sometimes it doesn't actually get warm until May. This is going to be really bad for Europe, and we're starting to get reports of the first snowfall in Ukraine, which means they're going to be in an even worse position because they not only have no electricity, they not only have no gas, Europe has limited electricity and limited gas, Ukraine has none, and they're in a war. And it's being projected now by sources that I trust, that being Scott Ritter, Douglas McGregor, that there's going to be a Russian winter offensive. And I believe it. Uh, Others believe otherwise. I'll say that. Some people think that it's Russia who fears a Ukrainian winter. So I'll, I'll just, for the sake of objective reporting, even though you know I'm not objective on this matter, I feel that it's necessary to bring that up, especially since I have learned my lesson about trying to predict what the Russian military is going to do. But if that winter offensive comes true, it's going to be a nightmare for Ukraine. They have no electricity. They have no gas. They have no power. This is going to be really, really bad. This is going to be really, really bad. But, I'm going to observe. I'm going to stay back and I'm going to watch what the Russians do. I'm not going to predict anything. (laughs) Like I said, I have learned my lesson. I'm I'm just going to watch. We have news outlets spinning the... If you remember last week that we had these missiles that fell into poland everyone jumped the gun and said it was russia thank goodness the polish government took the time to do their due diligence instead of provoking world war three again i fear to think what would have happened had a different group of people been in charge of that country or had the missiles hit the wrong country with the wrong set of people living in it because what if it wasn't poland what if it was i don't know france what if it was germany what if it was say sweden or finland these countries who just joined what if it was norway what if it was estonia latvia lithuania all these anti-russia hardliners within nato as if most countries in nato weren't hardlining hardliners enough against russia what if those missiles had landed there would they have taken the moment to stop and think hmm Are these really Russian missiles? Let's get to the bottom of this. Or would they have jumped the gun and said it was Russia and tried to trigger Article 5? Again, this could have gone south so incredibly fast. And I brought up that it's one of the reasons we shouldn't be involved in military alliances. We don't need foreign entanglements. And that is precisely the danger. Someone else got attacked by yet another someone else. And we almost went to war. Over what would have been uh, a false flag because the the Russians didn't fire the missiles, it was the Ukrainians. But now we have various news outlets trying to spin the Ukrainian missile incident as Russia running out of ammunition because they won't concede that it was the Ukrainians who fired the missiles. And those who do concede that it was Ukraine, they say it was an accident. It, it's an accident when the Ukrainians did it, and it's a deliberate provocation when the Russians did it, and by the way, Russia is running out of ammunition. Even though they're bombing Ukraine into the Stone Age, as uh, Scott Ritter would say. So it's, it's, it's fun to observe these things, even when they bring us dangerously close to a conflict that we really don't need to fight, especially us in America. Especially us in America. We have a fire in the Kyrgyzstani Parliament Building. We have China and this is the the big story of the day I believe and which is why I I had to throw it in here China is experiencing mass unrest and it began with a fire at an apartment in Urumqi this is a major city I believe the capital city of the region Xinjiang the Xinjiang region which is an autonomous region within China many of you have probably heard of it before if you're in geopolitics, if you're listening to geopolitics, you've probably heard of this. It's the, if I had to describe it, where Xinjiang is, it's the northwest chunk. Because it's it's pretty big. It's the northwest chunk of China, right above Tibet. Uh, you'll see Kazakhstan and Mongolia. That piece of China right there that comes in between Kazakhstan and Mongolia, that's, that's Xinjiang right there. That's Xinjiang. The, the whole desert, that's Xinjiang. Because once you go past the desert, you're in, you're in Tibet. It's a really strange climate change. But, hey, it makes it easy for me to describe where this place is. So, this fire happens at an apartment building in Urumqi, in Xinjiang. But the firefighters that were trying to put out the fire were unable to get to the building. They were unable to put out the fire... Because of the lockdown measures that were in place as per China's zero-COVID policy. So you had these people in this building who died. Because the firefighters weren't allowed to do their jobs because of the lockdown policy. And this has sparked a wave of protests around the country. With some even calling for Xi Jinping's resignation, you have people that they're not allowed to have symbols or symbology. When they're protesting, they're not allowed to wave signs of protest. So what they've done is they're, they're waving little pieces of white paper, clear blank white paper. So they're protesting. They're, they have a symbol, except it's a blank piece of paper, so it's technically not a symbol. They found a way around it. And it, it's taken place in a number of cities, Shanghai, Urumqi, in Beijing, I believe, and in Wuhan, among a number of other cities There was reports of some people saying that this started in Wuhan, it ended in Wuhan. And I can't confirm that, but, you know, I'll just tell you the stories. And what you have is, I believe, one of the more interesting things here is the reporting of this situation over here in the U.S., where it's the the people are fighting against tyranny in China, which technically is true. But if you'll notice, it's, it's framed as anti-government protests instead of what it is, anti-lockdown protests. And that goes to show the dangers of the biases in our own news, especially when you have people who really don't like a country framing every bad thing that happens to them as potentially being what overthrows their government. And you have people calling for the overthrow of the Chinese government because they believe it to be an authoritarian dictatorship. Now, it's not. It's authoritarian, but it's not a dictatorship. It's very much a, a chairmanship. Xi Jinping can't do whatever he wants. He has to have the approval of the party first. So, unless you view the party as the dictator, then it's not a dictatorship. But it is authoritarian. And what that means to us is... You can fill in the blank, because for me it means nothing. Uh. No. Look, I don't need to defend China, to say that what happens in China really doesn't really doesn't matter to me much. Like, well, what am I what am I gonna do about this? Because well, <clears throat> you have people saying that we should support the Chinese people in this endeavor, that we should stand with them and show our solidarity. Okay, that's cool. But what does that do? What What exactly are we gonna achieve in doing that? Other than perhaps gaining the permanent animosity of this country when they put these protests down. <laughs> because it's more likely that the protests are going to get put down than a revolution in China, uh, again, which is something that other people are flaming this as. I've, I've seen some headlines, oh, revolution in China. This is the end. of. I've, I'm looking on my YouTube feed right now. I have uh, revolution in China. Protesters demand Xi Jinping step down. Like, it, it's even on my feed. It's been all over my feed all day. But realistically, because you, you know how I am, we're probably not going to see Xi Jinping step down. I mean, he, he literally just got reinstated, well, re-elected by the CCP to be their chairman for the next four years. Well, five years, no, not four. He, he just got reelected elected by the, the CCP. He's probably not going anywhere. And the CCP itself, I guarantee you, isn't going anywhere. Not over this. So, no, well, probably no, Xi Jinping isn't going to step down. And definitively no, the CCP isn't going anywhere. This is not a revolution in China. This is a rebellion. That's what it is. It's a rebellion. And it's probably more likely than anything going to get put down. It's more likely to be put down than it is to overthrow the Chinese government. And that's not even what the protesters themselves are calling for. They're not calling for the overthrow of the Chinese government. At least not at this moment in time. Now, maybe if it goes on for longer, they might. But at this moment in time, it's just not accurate to describe this as an anti-government protest. This is an anti-lockdown protest with a, a, a flare of... Demands for accountability. Xi Jinping is the man responsible for the Z, the zero COVID policy. They're not calling for the overthrow of the CCP. They want accountability on him. The man who enacted and has stood by this policy of zero COVID, which has affected them so negatively for all these because it's been almost three years. When March comes around next year, it'll be three years since the beginning of the lockdowns and whatnot. So they've been dealing with this for almost three years now. And they still have COVID. They, they, they're they still getting COVID. They're still getting cases of COVID. And it's, it's just not working. Who would have thought that the lockdowns don't work? But they're not calling for the overthrow of their government. They want accountability and an end to the lockdowns. They're probably not going to get the removal of Xi Jinping. And they're definitely not going to get the overthrow of the CCP. What's probably going to happen is... China's going to put down the rebellions first, they're going to try to put it down first, and then later on, down the line, they'll remove the COVID, the zero COVID policy themselves to try to make it look like it was their own separate initiative. Everyone will know the truth, but, you know, it'll allow them to save face. That's how I see this going down, and perhaps I shall be proven right in the face of everyone else, (laughs) which will hopefully make you want to recommend me to... Everyone else that you see, you know, and beef my numbers up, why don't you? But that's my take on this, uh, the story of the day. But I have three other stories to tell you, but we'll get into that in just a moment. All right, turning to get into the meat of this episode. And we'll start by talking about the food situation coming out of Ukraine. As many of you know, there's been talk of a food crisis. This this talk was primarily had back in, you know, May, June, oh, the early half of the summer. It sort of died down over the summer and hasn't really been mentioned much since the, the in the fall. It still isn't being talked about much as of right now. But... With the breakdown of the Black Sea Agreement, the, the Black Sea Protocol, which was where Russia allowed Ukrainian grain to get out of the ports and go through Turkish ports and be checked before going out to the wider world. What that made me think about was the food situation. Because if that deal is now off the table. And even while that deal was active, Ukraine still wasn't exporting the same amount of grain that it was before. But with that deal terminated, it raises the question again, what about what about the food? And like, again, there wasn't as much Ukrainian grain getting out anyway when that deal was active. so there was already a shortage of food that was on the horizon, but at the very least it was mitigated. But with that deal no longer on the table anymore. What about the food? Uh, Over, again, over the course of the Russo-Ukrainian War, one thing that, uh, this this has been present in the back of my mind, it's been present in the back of many people's minds, again, primarily in the the, the late spring and early summer phase of the war, it's died down, but I I just couldn't help but think about it again. What's going to happen now? To all these people who are dependent on this food. I mean, Ukraine, prior to the war, I guess I'll do a little bit of a recap as to why Ukrainian grain shipments are so important. Like, br- prior to the war, Ukraine accounted for 10% of global wheat production. 15% of global corn production. 13% of global barley production. And as an added bonus, they dominated the sunflower oil business. That's cooking oil and they were producing a third of all the cook- the sunflower oil that were pr- that was manufactured they produced a third of it but accounted for half of the exports which can be explained by countries that produce it consuming more of it than they export i guess ukraine wasn't consuming it all that much but they were able to export more so they while well, they produced only a third they exported Half of the global supply. These are really, really big numbers. So, you you can already start to see where Ukrainian food production being taken offline would be a problem. And I guess for some additional context here, back in 2020, Ukraine exported 54.9 million tons of grain. In 2021, it, that number went down to 44.9 million tons grain, still really high. But how, as most of you know, as most of you know, and as you could probably guess, the war has greatly impaired Ukraine's ability to export this grain, especially over the course of this year, since the war has basically gone on. For the entirety of the year, with the exception of January and most of February. The war has been going on for the entirety of 2022. And which means that since it started in February, it's been going on throughout the entirety of the harvest season. And Ukraine, this month, Ukrainian grain experts are expected to fall short of 3 million tons. It's over 2 million, but not quite 3 million Which, combined with what they've already managed to produce, brings the total number of exports for the year, and we only have one month left to go, and that's December, it brings the total exports for the year up to 13 million, somewhere around there. 13 million tons of grain. And again, the number was 44.9 million tons last year, and 54.9 million the year before that. So it's looking like they won't even reach half of their 2021 export numbers. I mean, they're they're barely at a third right now. So what does that mean for the food? Because Europe had a drought this year. It's been one of the, the lesser talked about pieces of news, but Europe has had a drought this year. And the war in Ukraine has caused fertilizer shortages. Which themselves have helped to exacerbate a decline in food production around the world, and it's caused food prices to rise, because the fertilizer prices rose dramatically, and this impaired U.S. agriculture as well. Even though we're way over here, we were dependent on Ukrainian and Russian fertilizers. So what you had was the war happening, and then all of a sudden, agriculture everywhere just takes this hit. Because these were two agricultural powerhouses going to war. And now we're entering the winter. Ukraine's not going to reach half of their 2021 export numbers. I doubt that they'll even reach 16 million, let alone 20 million. So, Combine that with the with Europe having a drought. Combine that with the U.S. having impaired an impaired year. Right? It, it, it's not. It wasn't as bad for us as it was for other places around the world, but the U.S. is a major breadbasket as well. Take that all together, and that means famine. We are looking at an insane famine next year. Uh, again, probably not in the United States. We produce a lot of food, even when we, whether we want to or not, we just have really good fertile soil, and people who know how to farm, thankfully, thank goodness for us, but with the fertilizer shortage, and which is caused itself by a rise in fertilizer prices due to the war, you're going to have a fall in food production here because there's just not the fertilizer. We just don't have the fertilizer. So what you're going to have is a smaller U.S. food surplus. We're we're still going to eat. We're still going to be fine. But less of our food is going to be exported because less of it will be there to export, if you understand what I'm saying. So that's one major breadbasket who's going to have a shortfall in its... Well, not a shortfall. A decline in its exports next year. Ukraine... Is already offline, effectively. They're already offline. I mean, 13 million tons of grain, they're already offline. And then you have the Europeans. They're most likely not going to have a famine in Europe. Although, on that one, I will hold my judgment. I will withhold my judgment as it could happen, but I don't think it will. I'm not too certain on that one. What I am certain on. Is that there will be a famine in large swaths of Africa and the Middle East. Places that are dependent on Russia and Ukraine for their food. And the reason that's important. Is because Africa. I just checked the numbers the other day. and Updated my figures. Uh, the last figure I had for Africa's population was 1.1 billion. The 2021 figure for the continent of africa the population there was 1.3 billion that is a whole india now india itself is rapidly approaching the 1.4 billion market uh, what's a what's a couple hundred million you know it's just, it's not like that's the uh, a third of our population we're talking about for every hundred million <laughs> i swear it's it's crazy how many people we have on this planet and how many people we're able to sustain and Yet yeah, you have folks talking about overpopulation. I don't think overpopulation quite exists. I mean, I mean, uh, this is a, a whole side note here and uh, uh, a happy side note. We'll, we'll get back to the depressing stuff in a minute, but uh, we have talk about overpopulation. it's become a, a, a mainline thing to talk about. Namely because we have people in positions of power and wealth who are blatantly anti-humanist and believe in a depopulation agenda and who want depopulation. And you have... Uh, I'll, I'll just throw Bill Gates in, out there, you know. And the World Economic Forum. and Just throw that out there. They want depopulation. They view having too many people as a problem. But, as someone who, you know is a history nerd and likes having the context of history over the world and has a certain respect and love for America's history, even the parts of it that I I despise. (laughs) There isn't... There is no such thing as overpopulation. And maybe this is just my own independent research here, and I'm just blatantly wrong. I'll, I'll accept that, but... From my own studies, and this is just an ongoing thing because I'm a history nerd, I don't see overpopulation as really existing. Not in a, a long-form thing where there, you reach a certain number and, up oh, you're overpopulated and you can, you can never go beyond that. Sure, you have limitations in how many people you can support based on your technology. But look at where technology has brought us today. I mean if the territory of the United States had 300 million people back in 1700 okay we'd be having overpopulation issues we would never be able to support New York we it would take the it would take all the midwest just to support New York and Chicago uh, agriculturally in terms of food we we just wouldn't be able to sustain those types of populations you know maybe we would i mean China Actually, no, no. Even China wasn't able to do that. They were struggling enough with like half that number. And they have been really good at maintaining large populations even when, they, even when they lose a couple million here or there. China's usually been good at maintaining and feeding large numbers of people. So theoretically, we could have had a similar population in China and only then start to become overpopulated. But... In 1700, that would have only been 150 million people. Half of what we have today. America is nowhere near overpopulated right now. But back then, that would have been extra, extra overpopulated. It's just, you're talking about horse-drawn transportation and maybe water-borne transportation? And that's it. This is 1700. You just can't support a city the size of what we have today. But when you get to the 1800s when you, when we you know first got to around the 1 billion mark on it was somewhere between 1750 and 1800 that we got to the 1 billion mark globally it's all of human history right for bare minimum 4000 years in the BC and then another 17 1800 years so you're talking almost 6000 years of human history for us to get to the 1 billion mark. Could we have sustained a billion people in the year uh 1000 BC? No. We 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 just couldn't. We would have been overpopulated. Well, unless you unless we had more of that population spread out into say the Americas, but even then we just wouldn't have been able to support it. Yet fast forward to 1800 and we could. But then we fast forward even more Fast forward all the way to, not 1900, but rather 1939. And the reason I choose that date is not because it's when World War II began, but because in the 1930s, we reached 2 billion people. So 6,000, almost 6,000 years of human history, it took to get to 1 billion and be able to maintain 1 billion. But then just a, a hundred and something years later, we're able to support twice as many, and that's the power of the industrial revolution. Now we fast forward to today, where we don't have double that, we don't have triple that. We have f- we're rapidly approaching four times that number. We're, we're actually, I believe we are at eight billion right now. Two billion in the 1930s. We reached one billion by the eight by 1800, the year 1800. So we go from one billion after almost six thousand years of human history. We add on another 130 years, and we're at we're at two billion. So now we fast forward around, uh, hmm, not about well another hundred years, basically ninety years. Fast forward another 90 years, and we're at four times that number. We're at 8 billion. Overpopulation does not exist. It doesn't exist. Because as technology advances, the ability to house and feed and support larger numbers of people improves and with that constant improvement being applied over more and more areas of the globe i mean we haven't even tapped the rainforest we haven't even tapped the deserts yet we haven't even tapped the mountains yet people aren't even living in the oceans yet people aren't living underground yet there's still plenty of space for people to live theoretically we're only just now beginning to tap aquaculture Where we farm fish and farm seaweed and farm, you know, food that grows in the water. We're only just now beginning to tap things like that. That's going to cause an agriculture boom, which is going to enable us to feed more people and sustain more people. We're not even at the point where we're starting to put houses in the water yet. Yet. Who knows how hard we can make a skyscraper theoretically if we had a if we had improvements in material sciences. And who knows how deep we could get people to live comfortably. There's so much room yet to be tapped and so much agricultural potential yet to be tapped that we could easily reach a trillion people. I believe that. I believe that the the earth could actually legitimately house a trillion people. Not with the tech, obviously not with the technology we have today. We can't do it today. We'd be overpopulated. But as time progresses, and we start to tap more and more of our own potential for feeding and housing and supporting more people over across more and more different, you know, biomes and landscapes and climates and environments, again, underground, in the water, above the water, maybe even a floating city. I don't, I don't know too much about a floating city, uh, that, that's probably pushing it, but certainly a city on and under the waves a city underground we can do that what then would the carrying capacity of the earth be way higher than eight billion we we don't even have people living in the deserts not on mass you have a few examples of a major city in like arizona You have Las Las Vegas, you have Dubai, you have Mecca, and you have Riyadh, but by and large, people don't live in the desert. What if we tap the deserts? Suddenly, Australia could have a population boom. And instead of being equal in population to North Korea, they could have uh, the population you would expect of a continent. (laughs) I won't even begin to speculate on what that would mean for the U.S., Or all of northern Africa, if people were able to live comfortably in the desert, what about the rainforests? What about the mountains? There's so much space that can be inhabited that we just don't have the means to support people there yet. So it's not even just a matter of supporting people living in a place, but being able to support them living in different places that they can't live yet. Yet. Overpopulation doesn't exist that that's my observation throughout history the advancement of technology and our ability to support people across different biomes and environments and climates as that technology improves our ability to to maintain ever larger populations improve and the result is ever larger populations i don't believe in overpopulation and plus if we're going to talk about colonizing space how are we gonna colonize the stars where there is more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth? How are we gonna colonize that if we have only 8 billion people? Only 8 billion that we're gonna colonize the universe with only 8 billion people? There are more stars than grains of sand, and you think only 8 billion people is gonna is gonna be able to cut it? No. We're gonna need we're gonna need that trillion people. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna need that we're gonna need all of that and all of our people and plus, if we become an interplanetary civilization, now you're opening up the potential of agriculture on different planets supporting population growth on earth like there is no such thing as overpopulation no i'll 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 just leave it there maybe. Now we can we can get back to the depressing stuff now, can, <laughs> but that that's my that's my two cents on overpopulation, and but we're looking at a massive famine coming up, probably not in the United States, maybe not in Europe. I'll withhold my judgment, but certainly in large swaths of Africa and the Middle East. These are places that are dependent on Russia and Ukraine for their food. Africa is a continent of 1.3 billion people and growing and there's at least 390 million people in the middle east not counting pakistan or egypt i've excluded them because i'm i've already counted egypt in the africa number and i think afghanistan and iran is a good place to end off the middle east although if we want to count pakistan we can add easily another hundred and something million people so that's uh, well, over 500 million people in the Middle East if we're counting Pakistan. Oh, heck, we could even count the Central Asian countries, although I'm not entirely sure if they quite count as being in the Middle East, but if we want to count them, that's another couple, ten, few tens of millions. That's a lot of people. Half a billion people is a no joke. Uh, especially when you count Africa with the Middle East, you're looking at almost 2 billion. Especially if you're counting Pakistan and that Middle East figure. They will bear the blunt of this crisis. Almost 2 billion people are going to bear the brunt of this crisis. Now, taking a step back, we can see on the horizon a food crisis in Africa and the Middle East. An energy crisis in Europe that they're about to go through right now. And... Most likely, a financial crisis in the United States, which is largely self-inflicted, followed by a a largely self-inflicted recession in China over their zero-COVID policy lockdowns in Shanghai. Like, we are in for some tough times, folks. Now, luckily for me, I'm in the place that isn't going to starve. I don't think anyone in Latin America is going to starve either, at least not any more than usually do. I'm not going to pretend people don't starve, but we have it good in America. I'll just say that much. and uh, I really hope people are taking care of themselves and their families. I have a feeling that 2023 and potentially even 2024 is going to be a really rough year for a lot of people, especially the Europeans. Because, well, the food crisis is going to hit Africa and the Middle East for the next year. The year after that, the Ukraine war is almost certainly going to be over. The Russians will have moved in, and they'll be pumping out grain like we've never seen before—grain and oil and natural gas—and then that food crisis goes away after a year, maybe two. Again, I'm I'm really just not going to predict how long the Russians are going to take for this. I think it'll be over sometime next year, but I, I I'm just not. I have learned my lesson, but certainly. They'll control the food-producing regions in Ukraine to where they can deal with this problem for Africa and for the Middle East. Europe isn't going to be able to deal with this problem until, one, the Nord Stream pipelines get fixed, and two, they undo the sanctions on Russia. But will they? But will they is the the trillion-dollar question are they going to find it in themselves to undo the sanctions? Because if Italy can't, I I don't see who else is going to. I don't see who else is going to. If Italy, after this massive swing to the nationalist right, can't find it in themselves to put aside the sanctions policy for the sake of their own people, for their families, for their, their own culture and their nation, if they can't find it in themselves to do it, who else is going to maybe hung well the hungarians were already still getting gas until the ukrainians shut down the pipeline that was running to them uh, the one moving through ukraine that they said though there was a missile that hit the power station near belarus and that was the power station supplying the electricity necessary to move the gas through ukraine to hungary they said that a russian missile hit that perhaps it was russian perhaps it was ukrainian uh, uh, the hungarians called a a national security meeting they're going to get gas and aside from italy they're the only ones who are going to get it italy actually still gets a little bit of gas because a lot of the pipelines terminate in italy various pipelines from the middle east going into europe from the south they get to italy first and then they go the rest of the, uh, they go through the rest of the continent but if Italy can't find it in themselves to get rid of the sanctions, nobody else will. France isn't going to, especially not with Macron in charge. Spain and Portugal really don't have a reason to. They they really don't have a reason to. They get most of their natural gas from North Africa. So they they can do without Russian gas if they chose to, and it's not going to hurt them too much. They just They just don't have that same level of dependency that the rest of Europe does. But Britain... Uh, they're going to get smacked. They're going to get smacked. Norway will be relatively fine. Well, actually, they're going to be very fine because they produce, they produce all their stuff. They're net exporters. They'll be fine. Sweden and probably Finland will be fine by proxy. There is a pipeline from Norway to Poland now that opened up conveniently right after the Nord Stream pipelines got bombed. Hmm. I wonder if there was an agenda there. But... Norway's gonna be fine, the Nordic countries are gonna be fine, with maybe the exception of Finland, because I'm not entirely sure if they have natural gas linkages to Norway yet, so they're gonna be alright, Italy and Hungary will probably be alright, but who else in Europe is gonna be alright? Russia will be, but apparently Russia's not European anymore. (laughs) I I see lots of problems for those Europeans, and the reason I bring up the natural gas issue is because it, if they can't bring themselves to undo the sanctions, then they're going to have the same problem, the same energy crisis every year until they either find alternatives to Russian natural gas, which would require the building of a lot more pipelines... And the abandonment of this green agenda, this net zero utopia that they want. Either they do that or what they do what I've advocated for, which is building nuclear power plants and using coal. Coal and nuclear. That's what Europe has. They should use what they have. Then you don't have to be dependent on foreign countries for your, your energy. Now, that's what I've been advocating all summer. Coal and nuclear. It's going to take them a while to build that. But at the very least, it's something that you have that you don't have to depend on other countries for. I mean, think about it. The EU was originally the European Coal and Steel Community, so they can they can trade coal and steel, and get these power plants up, go back to your roots, and solve the problem. I don't think they're going to solve the problem though. I real I, I doubt that they will, and it's going to cause them problems for years until they do. So we're we looking at problems. Uh, China's going to suffer a recession due to their lockdown policies, and they they're in the middle they're in the midst of a rebellion right now. Uh, so we'll see what comes of this. Probably not the overthrow of the Chinese government. Probably not the removal of Xi Jinping, but probably most likely the end of the zero COVID policy. You know, after they get a grip on the unrest. The U.S. is probably going to go through a, a recession, maybe even a depression. You know, we we have lots of we have a really big bubble economy, and that bubble's uh, at various moments looking like it's going to pop. You have the FTX scandal, which was basically exposing how the, the Demo- mostly Democrats, although there were some Republicans, how they were laundering money through Ukraine and right back to themselves and using FTX, and this, which was this crypto fund. That whole thing collapsed on, under its own weight, and a lot of dirty laundry got aired and now there's an investigation into it so we'll see what comes of that i imagine more will come of it when the republicans are in charge but eh, like i said I, eh, the republicans like to do nothing so we'll we'll see what actually comes of that but again lots of lots of problems lots of problems but at the very least the famine situation should be over after 1 year of famine and hopefully not 2 or 3 uh, again, and this is me betting that Russia is going to annex all of Ukraine. Uh, I do not think there's going to be a Ukraine when this war is over. Others believe I'm going to be wrong. But that's my prediction. That is, may- I have maintained that as my prediction. And I have, I have a list of my predictions that I set up early on in the war. I can't wait to see uh, when the war is over how my early predictions stacked up to what actually happened. That'll be really fun to go over. But, yeah. But for now, for now, we'll move on to the dollar in decline. And the reason I decided to do this story is because I was reading a story about Ghana and how they were ordering the sale of refined gold by their large gold mining companies. They were mandating that they give 20% of the gold that they had to their country's central bank. Now, at first, I was just going to throw this into the rapid fire news as a little interesting and but relevant bit of news. Until I read further, uh, and I'll be—I'll be honest with you—I was at first I was going to use this to make the point that we should also be using gold to base our currency in instead of, you know, the sale of oil, i.e., the petrodollar, and that way we can not worry about what countries do and don't use the dollar for their purchase of oil it just wouldn't matter to us as much we could focus on ourselves but then as i read further i realized that the why they were doing this was way more important than what they were doing because they were ordering this mandatory sale of gold to the country's central bank because Ghana plans to use the gold to buy oil instead of the dollar And it's interesting because the reason they want to use this gold instead is mainly because their currency reserves of U.S. dollars is falling, largely because they use so much of it on purchasing the things that they need. So it's sort of a strange sort of paradox because in this move that they're making to maintain their supply of U.S. dollar reserves, they are helping to destroy the u.s dollar as a reserve currency it it's uh, very interesting but and what i guess is also interesting is how it, it is completely unrelated to the politics surrounding the petrodollar it's just them making a a sound decision for themselves like hey if we keep if we keep spending our dollars this way we're going to run out of U.S. dollars, and then we can't get the things that we need. So we're going to do this, this pot. We're going to use gold to get oil instead of dollars, so that we can have more dollars to get other things. And conveniently, and strangely enough, that's going to undermine the dollar as a reserve currency. It's, it's just a very interesting story. It's very interesting. And I'm happy I came across it. Yeah. Like... But this is yet another nation moving itself away from the petrodollar, and again, it's for reasons completely independent of the petrodollar itself. They're not, they're not making an overt move to try to subvert the dollar and try to get away from U.S. dollar hegemony. They're just, we would prefer to have dollar reserves, but we have to balance our budget a little bit, so we're going to use gold to get oil instead of dollars. It's it's so innocent and. <laughs> It's so innocent and yet so mischievous and dirty at the same time. They did not intend for this, but that's what's happening. But when you factor this in, with Saudi Arabia being open to using other currencies like the Chinese yuan for the sale of its oil, and you have a recipe for this plan that Ghana has to use gold to get oil, It's likely to succeed because Arabia is open to using other currencies and other forms of payment to get their oil. And I'm certain they wouldn't be opposed to gold, of all things, being exchanged to them for their oil. Gold for oil. Hey, we can use gold for anything because everyone accepts gold as money. It's a win-win cooperation. The petrodollar is in its last days. if Tiny Ghana, for reasons completely independent of the Petrodollar, can undermine the Petrodollar just by sound bookkeeping, the then what else can I say other than the Petrodollar is, is on its, its, its final days? It is on its last legs, which is all the more reason for us to get ahead of this and ditch the Petrodollar system ourselves. Like, I said it in my second anniversary episode, that we shouldn't be fighting other countries for control of their neighborhoods, we should instead use the turbulence of these changing times as cover to remove ourselves from all these places that we don't need to be in and begin rebuilding here at home. I mean, goodness. Ghana is just, they want 20% of the stockpiled gold that major mining companies have to go to the central bank. They're going to use that gold to buy oil instead of dollars. Well, that that's a nail in the coffin to the dollar. Because what's to stop other countries who have their own mineral resources from doing the same? What's to stop them from doing the same? There's absolutely nothing stopping. People are worried about, oh, the yuan is going to overtake the dollar. Oh, the BRICS countries, they're going to make their own central, they're going to make their own currency and that's going to overtake the dollar what happens if gold overtakes the dollar because everyone just starts using it again for their international transactions now there's something people weren't thinking about certainly something i wasn't thinking about and i'm an advocate for a gold standard it's if we're at this point in the life cycle of the petrodollar it's time to leave it's time to leave and that i think we should do it i i I don't like the Petrodollar anyway, so you know I'm not I'm not opposed to this. I just wish we could get ahead of things like this instead of reacting to them. But hey, better late than never. You know, better late than never. But now, we'll get into our final story for the day. Our next story is... Britain. Our next story is Britain. And I have a meaning... To do a little segment on Britain. For a little bit now. I, it was just a lot happening. And I hadn't really formed my own. I hadn't really formed my own thoughts. On what was going on in Britain. But I figured. Figured. Now would be a, a solid time. To throw in my. Observations. And my. I guess analysis. But really it's more. My observations. than any, More than anything else. On The turbulence that britain's going through and I've, i've been observing this political game of musical chairs that's been going on in the uk along with a number of prerequisite issues which have been the cause for the political crisis in the uk parliament the economic conditions have continually worsened even strangely with the end of the lockdowns now most countries post lockdown saw a strong if only temporary rebound in their economies. Some countries have had a more longer lasting rebound. Some countries suffered a little bit of economic collapse a little bit later. But generally there was a rebound as people went back to work. But that doesn't appear to have been the case in Britain. Although I'm I'm just not entirely sure why. We could probably point to any number of things like government spending policy, regulations, high taxes. But there are plenty of other places that have had those same conditions present without having the problems that the UK is having right now. Which leads me to believe it must be something else. And again, I I can't quite pin down what that problem or number of problems that caused it to be this way. What I can do is observe the effects that these problems have had. And they're mostly negative. We have store closures, which have continued in Britain. Even with the end of the lockdowns, you have really old taverns, some of which were established nearly a thousand years ago, if you can believe it or not. They're shutting down. You have Britain's fish and chips industry in danger of going out of business. You have energy bills uh, energy bills in Britain have reached these ridiculous levels. Like I, I just recently sort of looked back in time to get, to get some perspective on what exactly we were dealing with here. Cause I saw that they were uh, 1700 pounds. This was back in, you know, uh, the summer. I'm like, oh wow, that, that's a lot. And, and then the 2000, oh, that's a lot. So uh, I decided For the sake of this segment here to look back and really get some, again, perspective on why those numbers specifically were bad. And it's ridiculous because the energy bills in Britain went from around 575 pounds back in 2021, right? So roughly, I'll say $600. That's a lot, mine. but I, I guess we just have it good here in the United States. But that was in 2021. 575 in 2021. But when we fast forward to October of this year... when what you doing? We have... The October. Um, okay, th- 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 there we go. I lost my place for a second there. But... When we fast forward to October of this year, in 2022, the energy bills went from 575, and which is 2021, to 2,500 pounds. 2,500 pounds. Uh, God... Reading that, when I was going over it and writing it down for this segment, it almost made me want to cry. I mean, I, I, it was just strange, because I, I, mean, I talk about war and conflict fairly often on the podcast, especially with the Russo-Ukrainian War. But, I mean, I've never seen war. I've never been in war, and I, quite frankly, have no intention of ever, of ever adding that to my list of experiences. But I have paid a bill before. I help my dad pay rent. And for us, that's about $1,400 a month. I have yet to get to the... I have yet to get the, the new Modern Warfare game. Because they, they want me to pay $69 for that shit. But guys. Guys. These niggas in Britain are paying double my rent on their energy bills alone. Ukraine doesn't even have electricity anymore so at the very least the ukrainians are spared from bankrupting themselves on high energy bills and actually thinking about it now i guess we can we can probably add the sanctions policy towards the potential list of reasons why the uk is struggling like it is but i'll digress the uk is paying double my rent on their energy bills they still that doesn't cover rent Rent is probably equal to or greater than what I'm paying, because most of them live in a city. And you know how rent in cities Uh Some of you who might be living in New York or California... Oh, boy. You know, you're probably looking at my rent and saying, Oh, wow, that, that's pretty cheap. <laughs> but think about that. Double my rent on their energy bill alone, and then they still have to pay rent, they still have to go get food. I remember back in the summer, there were stories of people saying... Uh, this is all I have. They're, they're out there trying to get food, and they're offering up uh, a nickel and a dime. Uh, I'm exaggerating just a little bit there, but they're saying that this is all I've got. And it's like, how did we get to this point? Like, they still have a massive flow of illegal immigrants coming into the country. Something, it was thought that the Tories would do something about. The Tories are the Conservative Party in the UK, and... Getting a grip on immigration was one of their core platform issues. And they've done nothing about it. In fact, it's gotten worse under their watch. Which is strange to me because, you know, the UK is an island. And the Royal Navy should probably be doing something about that. But, you know, I guess escorting them onto the island is better than sending them back to whence they came. That's what the that's what the old Royal Navy would have done. Either that or conscripted them into the Navy. <laughs> but they have this massive flow of illegal movements. The Tories are doing nothing about it. Labour won't definitely won't do anything about it. They they want the immigration. I mean, but look, we're we're six years out six years on from the Brexit referendum. And the UK after actually leaving the EU at the end of twenty nineteen, they've spent the last two years since actually leaving the EU. Floundering, and that's the best way I can put it. floundering. They spent their time trying to negotiate a favorable deal with the EU. And in this, they were essentially trying to gain all the same trade access to the EU member states that they had when they themselves were an EU member state. something which, in my opinion, should never have been expected or even hoped for after. Seceding from this institution? And and most of the blame there lies with the British Parliament. Uh, I'll just say that, because most of those members, those MPs, had never really embraced Brexit and had tried to remain a part of the EU in some way, shape, or form when Britain should have been exploring its many new options. They should have been negotiating deals with China, the United States, India... Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Brazil, Argentina, Indonesia, Japan, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Norway, and Mexico, just to name a few, you know, really hitched their wagon to the largest and the rising economies of the world. Maybe even get in on the ground floor of the East African community, you know, at bare minimum for... The cobalt resources of the Congo, let alone the market of that many people. I mean, they're they're almost a hundred million by themselves. Uh, If I'm remembering the numbers properly. That's a lot of people. That's a good market to be able to get in on the ground floor of, especially if they really do become a federation later on. It's something. But they should have been negotiating deals with all these, all those countries I named. All these places around the world that they could have been doing business with now that they weren't subject to EU laws and EU regulations and EU trade policy. Now that they were free to do this themselves, they should have embraced Brexit. And yet they failed to do so. Britain should have fully embraced Brexit and yet they have, due to Parliament's obstruction, failed to do so. They should have they should have become Singapore on the Thames. Instead they wasted their days in endless negotiations with a political entity that has been and still remains hostile to them. Of course I'm talking about the EU. And then you have back in September you had the Queen dying. Which and she died two days after the resignation of Prime Minister Boren Johnson. Uh, Boren Johnson, Boris Johnson. Johnson, who was then replaced by Liz Truss, who herself resigned a week after assuming the prime ministry, uh, becoming the shortest-serving prime minister on record in the process. And then she was replaced by Rishi Sunak, who no one likes, and who was actively trying to get a, a trade deal with the EU, similar to what Switzerland has, which would. Completely fly in the face of Brexit. uh, Again, at every turn, the Parliament seems to not embrace Brexit and what it could be doing for this country. And when I say this country, I'm talking about Britain, because I'm American. we, We would never be in the EU. Or so, I think. But... Looking at this, you have, with the the poor and worsening economic condition, the death of Queen Elizabeth, this real unifying factor in the country, Queen Elizabeth II, with the disillusionment of the voters with both the ruling party, the Tories, along with its primary opposition party, Labour, and the unstable leadership in the country, altogether have led to an almost palpable demoralization and a general sense that the country is in a steep decline. And all I can say is that these folks are, like many other people, in a lot of trouble. The world's in a lot of trouble, quite frankly, if the topics I've chosen for this episode are anything to go off of. But I say better to be honest with ourselves about that trouble and plan accordingly than to pretend it's not there. Lots and lots of trouble, uh, with China being the the latest country to add onto that list. I was not planning on talking about China this time around, but uh, it became the story of the day, so I, it's a big one, so I didn't have too much of a choice but to throw it in there and throw my two cents in. And I guess while we're back on this topic, I'll say that it's pretty ironic seeing so many people who were advocating lockdowns and saying that the Chinese had had got COVID right. (laughs) The Chinese did it right. and How can we how can we do what China did and uh, oh the, the U S is uh, falling behind and China, China has a grip on COVID. I remember it. I remember all 5 million years ago, back in 2020 when the sensationalism and the hype around COVID-19 and how China, everyone was just hopping on that Chinese cock. <laughs> I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure those of you who are old enough to remember, you know, uh, all you veterans of the the 2020 I know it was eight years ago but I, I'm sure you remember it just as well as I do thinking about it now everyone was saying how China got it right and China was the model that everyone needed to follow and how if only if only we could just put aside these civil rights and these constitutional rights that we of these of, of our country these those confounded God-given rights of yours, if you just put them aside and let the government control you, then we could finally be rid of COVID. And people on both sides of the aisle here were at one point or another on board with the idea of masks, uh, of lockdowns, two weeks to flatten the curve. Everybody, everybody was on board with it at one point in time. And it took until like March or April for people to start, you know, speaking against it. And I believe it was in late March that we saw the first, the first protests against lockdown measures in the United States, and they were ridiculed by the same people to, who today say that China will look at the, the the crisis and the protests happening in China and say they're an authoritarian regime, and this is what happens when people stand up for freedom in their in this country, and how they if they don't do it, it it's now or never. It, all these things but everyone was in favor at one point or another of lockdowns in our country and the question that pops up in my mind you know reflecting on that is what would china being a democracy have changed because while we in the united states are a constitutional republic the uk is a democracy canada is a democracy All of Europe is a democracy. Australia and New Zealand, they're democracies. Japan's a democracy. South Korea's a democracy. Taiwan, the the favorite child of the conservatives in America. Taiwan, this thriving democracy. You'll, You'll hear those words every time you ever bother to look up the geopolitical tensions between China and Taiwan. A Thriving democracy. All these thriving democracies embraced lockdown measures, embraced, uh, embraced mask mandates, and many of them embraced vaccine mandates. Some of them went as far as vaccine passports. If you'll remember, Israel pioneered that and a number of other countries were, were on board. All these democracies were on board this authoritarian agenda, this authoritarian ideal that if we just give up our rights, we can fight the virus. Now, that's resulted in lawsuits here in the United States, and will probably result in more lawsuits around the world, but given what happened in the democracies around the world, what would China, being a democracy, have changed? Because right now, you're, you're getting the the tongue bath of how China's an authoritarian, and the people, are they want freedom, and they want democracy, and, and all these things, you're getting another round of that, so while that's sort of in the cycle, mainly among uh, the alternative media, not quite the mainstream media, but you know, the news, the news channels you'll see on YouTube and whatnot, Then those commentators, they'll bring up China not being a democracy like we are, but what would China being a democracy have changed? Considering the path that we ourselves went down. What would China being a democracy have changed? And I I remember I was watching a Tim Pool video where he had brought up how China being a democracy might... If the the CCP got overthrown, and he was advocating for this, mind you, which a lot of them do, I think that that sort of instability would be... That would do no good to anyone. That sort of instability would do no good to anyone. He said if, if they overthrew the CCP then we could potentially see relations between the U.S. and China get better. But when I'm thinking about that, why would they? You think just because they're a democracy, they're going to view us as anything other than a threat to their existence? Uh, what would that level of instability even do? I mean, we, we people say that Xi Jinping is a dictator right now, but if China was destabilized to that degree, as to where the CCP was actually in danger of being overthrown, or potentially even did get overthrown, and you had a revolutionary government, well, now you have the the military who swears an oath to the CCP who might step in. And they might take charge. And then you'll have a real dictatorship. Then you'll have a real dictatorship. When you have that level of instability in the central government in China, that usually is the green light to certain provinces in the country to try their hand at secession. I'm looking at Tibet, Xinjiang, Sichuan, Inner Mongolia, Manchuria, and various regions along China's mountainous jungle south, their mountainous tropical south. Hong Kong might try its hand at secession. And then what then? China goes on a military campaign to put them all right back into China. But they'd be a democracy. Hey, at least they'd be a democracy when they did that. Would China being a democracy change the feelings of the masses in China who want a national reunification with Taiwan? Who want Taiwan to be reunified with the mainland? No, it it wouldn't. I don't think overthrowing the CCP is going to accomplish what people think it's going to accomplish. I think it would create more problems. Now, perhaps, perhaps in the, the long, long, long run, you might get something good out of it. But we... Don't know that. We don't. We... A a, a lot of people just don't think through these positions. But... At the very least... I can say that... A lot of the takes you're probably going to see... Outside of this lovely little podcast of mine... Are what you get when you're blinded by ideology. Because that's a fantasy. These are fantasies. But... Like I said... While it, while what I have to say might not be the most thrilling, especially with the today's rather depressing episode, I say better to be honest with ourselves about the trouble that we see, than to and to plan accordingly with that trouble, than to pretend it's not there and to pretend that it's something that it's not. But alas, alas, that is all I have for you today, my lovely listeners. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. <sighs> the world is changing, going through some turbulent times and with more turbulence ahead. And I hope you are taking care of yourselves and your families so that as the world changes and goes through this turbulence, we can have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Sean Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.